Do you know what they call a lunatic with one case and no hobbies? Your worst nightmare. And I'm like, Nick Miller. (laughs) Nick Miller, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Who's That Girl, a new girl podcast. I'm Kritika. And I'm Kelly. And we're long-distance best friends who bonded over our love of TV and brought you this podcast to recap one of our favorite shows, New Girl. Today, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 19, Fired Up. This episode originally aired March 11th, 2014, and it was written by Sophia Lear, who last wrote for Season 2, Episode 22, Bachelorette Party. And it was directed by Steve Welch. And this is the first episode of five that he directs for New Girl. But he's known primarily as an editor for TV shows like New Girl, Malcolm in the Middle, Men of a Certain Age, and movies like Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. In this episode, Jess gets Coach a job at her school as the volleyball coach but then has to fire him almost immediately. Schmidt gets sued, so Nick and Winston pose as his lawyers while Cece meets a new, younger guy at the bar. This episode was too cute that Jess was so excited. She just comes in so excited that she already got Coach a job, but I was kind of surprised that Coach didn't seem too grateful for it. He's like, I don't like kids. I don't like this. I just like getting paid. And I'm like, that's a lot of people. That's most of us, coach. But you can have some enthusiasm about your job. I agree. He didn't seem very grateful at all. But I kind of chalked it up to being a lot of what coach's character is. Like, we saw him fight being friends with Jess for so long. Like, he just kind of feels like that character who is really just sweet under the surface and doesn't like to show that. And even in that previous episode where he helped Winston work through his anxiety around taking the LAPD exam. At first, he was just really wanting to get him out of his hair so he could train that girl that he was training with and maybe hook up with her. But you really got to see a softer side. And I think it was even our yes in the 2020s then. And I feel like that's really what Coach is doing here too. Because immediately, he loves the job. And all the kids love him too. I was kind of surprised because... He was yelling at them like he's pretty intense and the kids just love him. I was glad to see that happen so quickly, too. It was like we get the oh, do I have to? And then immediately he's like, I love this. This is the best. And you're like, yep, there's the coach. I know like the Ernie. Let's be real. The Ernie on the underside of the tough coach. So, yeah, I thought that was so sweet, too, that the kids just were like loving it. He was loving it. But then, of course, that brings in the humor of Jess immediately having to do something about it because she's like, I want to be a vice principal and coach. I love that he encourages her. This resonated a little too much for me in our line of work. Kritika was just wanting a promotion. Like she's like, you can't just ask for it. You have to earn it. And I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. You need to earn it. Yes. Like that is true. You need to be worthy of the promotion, but you need to ask for it. If you do not let others know that you want a job or want to be promoted, it will not happen. So thank goodness for Coach, or else we would have probably seen another two seasons of Jess not doing anything about her job. Yeah, and here she's doing so much to try and earn that promotion, like she said. And the stuff she's taking on isn't even vice principal duties. She's taking on IT stuff, which I just have to say, this is the same girl who wanted to delete something off the internet and called someone about it in season one. But now she's a probe computer, she's lawn mowing, cleaning murals or graffiti really off the wall. And it's not even something you'd want to do for a vice president role. But I totally agree. Like I love how coaches just stepped in and it might be his first week or first couple days on the job, but he's already there for dress, helping her get to that. And of course it leads to what in a typical show would be like a training montage, but really it's just intense coach yelling at Jess and throwing her volleyballs until, of course, one hits her in the face. Well, I was going to say until she gets fired up. True. For the role. Fired up so that she can go talk to Dr. Foster 
And she does. And it is, again, one of the weirdest interactions. And Dr. Foster keeps losing points. He keeps not being the fun guy that you think he's going to be. And it just says silly, weird stuff. I'm glad, though, that Jess got excited that Coach helped her so that she could ask for the role. And she did. But then Dr. Foster basically instantaneously gives her this job. And my thought process was like, "Uh uh-oh, red flag. Jess, don't you want to determine why it was so easy for you to get this job? Because, yeah, okay, you do. You have earned it. You are doing all this work and you do deserve it. That's not the question here. But he too willingly gave that away to you because he's like, I thought I would have had to force someone to do it. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh. And also, do you really want to work that closely with Dr. Foster? Like, I get that it's good for your career growth, but mm, sometimes leaders matter. (laughs) Like, you've got to find a different way to get to the top. And is a vice principal gig just an add-on to an already teacher gig? Because it seemed like she was just going to take on more and more work, just like she had been, but a different kind of work. Whereas I always thought vice principal was a whole job, like separate from being a teacher typically. And so I was also surprised about how easy it was. Yes, red flag. I agree with that. And I didn't think about this, but 100% why would you want to work so closely with Dr. Foster? But also, is this even in his purview to just hand out to her? Like, I would assume there's more people involved. But instead, it just becomes her job. And I was excited for her in that moment because she achieved this goal that it seemed like was otherwise going to take her two to three years. And then, of course, because it's a comedy, you immediately follow it up with Coach running behind her, wanting to dump Gatorade on her, which was honestly just the best moment of that scene because... Dr. Foster as a whole, like you said, is very cringy and you just don't want to spend more time with him. I love that too from Coach because it was just the nature of him as a coach. I'm like, where would he even have found a tub of Gatorade? Who knows? Right. It's just there for him. He just, he's been there, what, like hours at this point, two days, who knows? And he's already determined where the Gatorade cooler is and how he's going to dump it on Jess. Coach was really on it this episode. But yeah, I'm not really sure what the vice principal role in this context would entail beyond just already being a teacher. When she was doing all those extra jobs, was she still teaching like three subjects at once? Like, remember how she had to do that? I don't remember if that was temporary or not. I'm just like, what all are you doing, Jess, for this school? And also, when we find out that she has to do budget cuts, it was so weird because Jess is the one who even brought the budget issue to Dr. Foster and was like, hey, we actually don't have enough money for this. At first he goes, oh, we have a surplus of money? How amazing. And you're like, nobody ever has a surplus of money. Like, what are you talking about? And so when she finds out she has to do budget cuts and he's like, oh, okay, you know, last in, first out. I'm just like, Dr. Foster is continuously saying awkward things. And then he's also like very misguided on the right approach to things and really not encouraging Jess to be creative on how this discrepancy should be addressed, but let alone he should have known about it already. He should have, but I don't think that we look at Dr. Foster as an example of a great principal. So I think it makes sense that he wouldn't have noticed it, but Jess would have immediately noticed it within taking the job for less than a week, probably at night that she would have noticed this. But I see where he's coming from on the budget cuts and the staffing. But the reality is if you cut a coach, someone else has to take that role. And I mean, I think we see throughout the episode what they do when they cut these teachers or cut the staff. But I agree that they didn't really give or he didn't frame it as you figure out how we're going to make the money back and then get to, oh, well, you didn't find a way. So now we have to cut staff or something like that. So it was kind of weird. Like I get where he was coming from in this, but it should be based on more than just tenure because then if you always have budget cuts, you're always going to keep your most tenured person, which makes sense if they're a good teacher, but it doesn't feel like any of that factored in. Like it was just last in, first out, like you said, not last in first out that is not being a good teacher or not being a good coach or whatever role that they were playing. Because in this case, coach was doing an awesome 
job. I mean, the kids that he was coaching gave him a letterman jacket that said, coach, coach. Like, it was so sweet. They obviously really liked him, and he loved them, and it seemed like more than just liking each other, he was a good presence for them. And that's what I think makes that last in, first out so hard, because Dr. Foster clearly has no empathy, clearly doesn't care, and it's just like, you want this job, you have to fire a coach. Exactly. And sometimes for me, it comes down to what is the need that needs to be addressed? So who is going to coach the children in their sports if it wasn't coach? Right? It would have just probably been a teacher being forced to do more than they have actually been paid to do. And in this case, like Jess was taking on so many different things, but you know that Jess could not take on sports ball. (laughs) I think at one point during like that training montage, she even called it, oh yeah, I love athletic ball or like something that didn't even make sense that I'm like, only people who are not sport athletically inclined call it like sports ball. (laughs) Like only people who are like Jess are the ones who call it that. And I'm just like, okay. Jess can't be the coach here. Like she can't take on this job too. Somebody else will have to do it. And really coach was the right person for the job. And that was recognized with the kids when they give him coach, coach varsity jacket. (laughs) And coach's response after he hears this news though, is like, I'm not coach anymore. I'm just coach. What does that even mean? Like, it's just used in so many different ways, coach. (laughs) Yeah, and it's interesting when things like this happen and a work dynamic, but then there's also friendship or other elements involved because this whole situation happened with coach, but the next day, Winston is freezing Jess out because she had to fire coach. And it's not her choice and she tries to explain that to Winston but really in this it's a very one-sided in that he's only seeing the black and white of you hired this person that's our friend and now you fired him very soon after and it's just an interesting dynamic when you put it all together and even just sitting down with coach later they start commiserating because he's already missing the kids so much that the two of them just sit there crying over all the different children, what's going on in their lives, how they are going to move forward without coach. And it's it's just so interesting to see because, you know, this is only a 22-minute episode. And from the beginning where coach was like, I hate this, I don't want this, to now seeing him basically cry over some children he's known for a week less, like – It's very sweet to see this arc for a coach and Jess actually starting to stand up because of that and fight for something to be different and not putting her job above what's right. I did for a minute think that Winston was like finding it a little bit more harsh than even coach was finding it when he was upset, like giving her the stink eye essentially. But then of course, when they go to the bar and they're like, he's crying over it. You're like, okay, you're also really distraught and sad over this, but not to the point where like you were freezing Jess out. Like he was actually proud of Jess for being able to like get the job and do her job and continue with being in charge and running it. So she helped him get the job and then she had to get rid of him. But yeah, I think really the changing point in this is when Jess realizes like, this isn't what I wanted. I want to employ the right people essentially is what she's getting at and is going to stand up for that. So that was great that (laughs) she is now fired up once more and she's spiking the beer off the table and coach is like, that was beer. That was not a ball. Like you got to check yourself, (laughs) but it worked nonetheless to get them to go to the game and coach rallying the team up. And as part of rallying up the team, I have to just give a special shout out to Rakeem because he comes through in these huddles and he is just a little bit behind and then just yells out his own name, which was hilarious in this episode. Like I really loved Rakeem. (laughs) And Coach is just like, I walked you right up to that line. That was supposed (laughs) to be obvious for you. (laughs) Oh man, Rakeem. It was such a funny moment in what was an interesting episode, an interesting arc here, because 
just standing up to Dr. Foster in defense of coach to say like, this is who the kids need. And I love how the biology teacher who's there coaching is just like, oh, thank God he's back and like hands over that whistle instantly because he's like, I don't want to do this. I thought it was an interesting storyline. And I also loved how on the side, teachers are just giving ideas of how to save money. Like to your point earlier about Dr. Foster's mentality being last teacher or last staff to be added gets cut first when you have budget cuts. Maybe if they just all sat down and talked to other teachers, they'd have more ideas and be able to get more things done because instantly they solved a big problem here and were able to find a way to save money by just talking to each other. So I was like, okay, well, I don't know if we'll get to see more of this because we don't see a lot of Jess's job, but maybe with Coach there now because he's staying, we'll actually get to see a little bit more of how this all works out, how this vice principal gig goes for her, and just generally more of the storyline. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see too if the teachers continue to all rally around the children and and go to their sports games for like a middle school sports team because I at least I was so glad like you that they were able to kind of talk it out and be like hey the orchestra can go here and like look at all the opportunities we have at the school but meanwhile I was like why why are all these teachers here <laughs> like who what teachers go to all like they spend their whole day at the school and then they all just like go to spectate at this middle school volleyball game it didn't make sense to me but through that, at least, we got to find out that Coach can stay. Or did we? Because Jess got whacked in the side of the head and was not able to even get a word out. And she gets up all, like, frazzled. So it was very, very cute to kind of see the end of that storyline with some humor. Meanwhile, though, we also have Schmidt in this episode who is struggling after renting Abby a storefront who's now long gone in the world but the storefront remains yeah he's back in the loft with nick and jess sharing a room so that schmidt can have jess's room and it's interesting because we always got to see their dynamic even when schmidt moved out just a little bit less of schmidt or he'd be entering the loft to say something and leave but now we've gotten og schmidt back here all his stuff is at the loft and kind of at the storefront like everything is really messy which I think is very indicative of like where Schmidt's life is at because he's such a neat freak I think it's really interesting to see how like his just array of stuff is like kind of representative of where his life's at right now because he literally has a storefront with stuff in it that someone comes in thinking it's a store because there's just his whole life basically because he doesn't have anywhere to put it back at the loft because he's bought all this new furniture that he was so proud of just a few episodes ago and now it's just all hanging out including a piano I didn't know that Schmidt played the piano I don't know if we've ever heard this before I don't even remember seeing the piano maybe I just wasn't observing very closely but like I don't even remember seeing the piano when they were giving the tour of the apartment and all the sex spots that were in it I was like was there a piano then? But yeah, Winston's the one playing the piano in the store in the moment, not Schmidt. And it made me kind of surprised too, like thinking of like how everything was in the storefront and like, yeah, okay, some of it was like in boxes in the loft, but I'm like, I guess Schmidt is really not officially moving back in. Like, I guess, like you said, like it's a very messy part of life and like a messy situation because it's not established that he's really moved back in because he's also not being very Schmidt of him to say, well, oh, I'm moved back in now. I'm going to put all my stuff. Let's take all your stuff out because my stuff is better. That would have been a very Schmidt perspective, I feel like, to just be like, well, I bought this fancy Italian whatever the heck, <laughs> like it needs to go here instead of this table that's falling apart type of thing. So I was surprised from that perspective, but then yeah, everything in the in the storefront, <laughs> it was giving me honestly a little bit of like the Parks and Rec vibe with Tommy when he was like selling his own suits and fancy clothes to children because he was the size of like young boys. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is kind of like this where like, okay, here's Schmidt like selling all his nice things because he's very, he likes a lot of nice things and he's selling it in a store. So I'm like, this really could have worked out. But then the guy who came in and then subsequently fell and said, I'm going to sue you. 
that guy seems like he would have just been fishing to do that because who just walks into a building that's clearly boxes everywhere? Like, unless it's like super, super modern, like postmodern even of like, this isn't even like a set up storefront. And just is like, oh yeah, you guys open? And like, okay, I get that Nick and Schmidt all were like trying to get a quick buck, but that guy seemed like he was fishy. Like he wanted to be able to sue them. I definitely agree. I don't think Nick was really trying to sell the stuff because I think he was the most cautious of something bad could happen. But when I saw the guy fall and immediately say, I'm going to sue you, I also thought that the rest of the episode when they went through this whole deposition was actually going to be finding out that this guy had like done this to many stores and this was like a habit that he had done just to make money. And I realize as I'm saying it out loud now, that would be more of a drama than a comedy. So I see why the storyline didn't go that way. But, you know, that's where I thought it was going to go, too, because I don't know a lot of people that the first minute they fall somewhere are going to say, oh, I'm going to sue you. I could see it both ways. And it did become a comedy because not only in this episode did we get him falling and saying, I'm going to sue you, we immediately, within hours nick is going to be i guess not within hours i mean nick did have to fight for being schmidt's lawyer a little bit that was a whole part of the episode but like before the episode is even over we got the whole resolution of this entire like quote case or whatever was going on and in a reality if this guy was really suing him it would be like honestly six months from now before schmidt would even be able to deal with this at all so I thought they took it in a funny way and I did enjoy some of the scenes that came from it, especially playing on Nick's ability that he did pass the bar in California and that he got to be the lawyer. But this episode, this this storyline for me kind of just like was on a pogo stick and just jumped (laughs) for it. Yeah, I agree. And you know, with the whole note about Nick passing the bar, I was really surprised that nobody was shocked that Nick had passed the bar because when he told Jess, yeah, it felt like no one knew. Like it was a secret he was telling Jess about how he did pass the bar. And now everyone's just like, oh, yeah, you passed the bar. And they're more interested in Winston being courtroom brown than any shock at Nick in this. That's honestly so sad. I didn't even realize that. Like that's a really big detail and that's big news that – Maybe Schmidt knew, but like a long time ago, you know, like he was definitely just telling Jess for the first time right. a couple episodes ago. And yeah, did Winston, did Schmidt even know before? Like they clearly acted like they did, but I don't think that that was made clear to the audience. Oh, that would be sad. <laughs> right. And so I was surprised by that. And the only thing I can think of is when he told Jess, if they didn't know before, they now knew. Like Jess had also spread that because. Sometimes with shows like this, I feel like when the audience knows, it's kind of assumed that all of the characters know because obviously like his best friends know, but I didn't. And so I was a little shocked by that. And I still liked all of the rest of the storyline and Winston's courtroom Brown. And honestly, Winston through the rest of this episode was hilarious. And I loved watching him do all of this, but I was just a little caught off guard by this Nick thing, especially because with the assumption that they already knew, like, Nick has no idea what he's doing. Like, I expected, again, with the guy who fell to be someone who's done this before, Nick to somehow come in and, like, be this world-class lawyer that no one knew about. And I thought, again, a very different idea of how this episode was going to go. But he forgot the word prep, and he was asking Schmidt what to do, and I felt bad for Nick. I was like, come on, Nick, you can do better than this. I know you have it in you. I mean, Jess gives him a pep talk, but I was like, snap out of it. You can do this. Like yelling at my TV screen whenever Nick was on trying to be a lawyer. That is true. I know it was kind of sad that they took like a cheap cut at Nick to be like, oh yeah, it's like riding a bike. And then they cut to a scene where he literally forgets how to ride a bike. He's like, they changed these, which like hilarious. Like who forgets how to ride a bike? But then I'm like, This is such a cheap shot at Nick. The way that the montage worked before or like the flashback worked before when we first found out that he passed the bar, it was like, no, I was amazing at this. I chose not to have this life. I didn't want it. Not, oh, I wasn't good enough to pass it. And now 
this is definitely seeming like the other side of the coin where it's like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And I forgot how to ride a bike. I forgot how to be a lawyer. And really the way that he even gets anybody out of it is with a cheap prank. Right? Yeah. Which is funny, which it worked. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) you know, like literally one of the best Nick lines ever. He's like, do you know what they call a lunatic with one case and no hobbies? Your worst nightmare. And I'm like, Nick Miller. (laughs) Nick Miller, ladies and gentlemen, he has it down. So that did, while that did feel very in character for Nick, I I agree. There's kind of like a weird dichotomy with he did pass the bar. He chose not to be a lawyer. He did seem like he understood everything about being a lawyer, but now he seems like a ditz, essentially. And I think if we had seen this in season one, I wouldn't have had so many questions about it because I feel like we're in season three now and even in some of the sister episodes, we've been commenting about how Nick is acting way more mature than Jess has been in a lot of those episodes and he's grown a lot in season two and season three. So to see it now with knowing that he passed the bar and was good, like you said, I think it's even more apparent because in season one, I wouldn't have had any questions about this because the way they played Nick to be was that comic relief on the ditzier side, like you said, but I don't think it was untrue to his characters. So I enjoyed all the fun content it brought, but it just felt like they could have done this differently. And to your point, they just didn't give him the best edit in this episode. However, speaking of editing, I actually really did like how they cut back to the courtroom after showing other scenes by making the stenographer read through everything that had happened and then it ended with her. Because it's like, how do we catch up on what just went went down? And it's like her reading through everything. And I at least thought they really did approach it with humor. Because even like you were mentioning too, like Winston's lines in this, they killed me because I'm like, okay, here's Winston watching all these like judging Amy and <laughs> reading the John Grisham books. He knows how to make a joke and schmooze about like, oh, just billable hours, am I right, guys? Like, trying to bond with the other lawyers. I'm like, you seem like you're just in your element. Like, I guess you are ready to be a detective with the LAPD because you just want to, like, glide right in. And it's not that he just tried to fit in with the other lawyers. They laughed along yeah. because he was right. It was more than, like, what Nick was doing, which was, like, trying hard. Winston was effortless like you said i was watching him and i was like where did he get so into lawyer lingo just from these books and shows like he is on top of it and all those lawyers were just loving every word i'm surprised they didn't ask anything earlier about the way nick was approaching the case when winston was the super cool high up partner lawyer if they thought that to be true but the best part about it was when the chair trick they knew about and like you said, the line about the lunatic with one case and no hobbies. But then Winston hands him his card and says, if you ever want to play with the big boys, let me know. And it's like a trading <laughs> card. It's just, it's so good because up until that moment, every single thing Winston's done, everyone has believed as like, this is a hot shot, high powered lawyer. And then he gives the card and the guy's like, oh no, he's just like Nick. Like he's just <laughs> faking it. They definitely handled the dynamic between Winston and Nick perfectly. Or should I say the dynamic of the lawyers of the offices, Miller, Bishop, and Ferguson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I mean, they couldn't have used Schmidt's last name because he was the defendant, right? But yeah, they did that perfectly. But then, you know, I will say before we really leave the storyline, there were also a few different moments in here with Nick and Jess. And I just want to say it was it was small, but it was noticeable that Nick earlier on was like so excited about the briefcase and like, does he look sexy with the briefcase? And Jess really needed to talk to him for her own situation and just really wanted his perspective and like to catch up with her boyfriend and Nick's like yeah I don't care about your problems I just want to talk about my sexy briefcase (laughs) and like made it all about him which was usually Jess who does that and Nick doesn't really get a word in so it, it just it did feel a little awkward if you will 
But then even at the end, you know, Jess is laying in bed asleep with her little reading light on her forehead and all her papers. And I did at least find that like Nick cleaning that up and being like power couple, like that was just really cute and nice. But at the same time, I'm like, here are these two people right now, just in very different places. And it's making me concerned. Yeah, it's very noticeable to your point how this conversation went. It doesn't make me feel great about them. Although the power couple line makes me feel a little bit better. Like maybe this was just a one-off one thing in the episode where they weren't meeting. But I know we've been talking about some of their communication gaps before this, really since they started, because I think you always say like that's their number one downfall, communication. And hopefully we see in the next episode that they're more in this power couple together phase and not in this, I'm not listening to you. I'm just in my own lane focusing on my stuff. I hope so too, but I'm not so sure because it seems like this lawyer bit for Nick, the power couple part of his side of the couple isn't going to be his thing anymore because unless Schmidt really keeps the store open and every customer who comes in (laughs) pretends to break their arm and or does break their arm and Schmidt needs another lawyer I feel like Schmidt definitely won't be hiring him back (laughs) after the performance he put on yeah and I think the writers could take this in a way where Nick like re-falls in love with law and actually pursues this power couple scene but looking at how the case went I don't think that's going to happen either. So we'll just have to see what happens for them next episode. But the only other storyline that we wanted to quickly touch on in this episode was Cece because she had her own little thing going on when this guy comes to the bar and tries to pick her up. Well, actually two guys try to pick her up. One guy is a rich douche who is like, come fly in a plane with me and all this. And then there's another one who is much sweeter, much more calm, and just is making fun of the first guy with her. But that guy is 20 years old. And I don't know how I feel about the storyline for Cece. And quick logistics check, if you will. Cece and Jess are presumably the same age or at least within one year of each other. And I believe that we know that Jess is 30 it was just her birthday we just had birthday episode and did they really say specifically i thought she was 31 or 32 at this point but somewhere between 30 and 32 so at least a 10-year age yeah. gap here for cc for cc yeah. yeah so it is it is substantial that is a large gap but then am i am i of the unpopular opinion that as Buster was trying to charm Cece and even Mike, I guess, because Mike was digging it. I'm like, okay, this guy's 20. He's young, youthful. But really, the main thing he has going for him is that he has an Australian accent. There's nothing else that is so attractive about this person. I can believe, though, that like two people instantly could have really good chemistry and maybe that was what was going on with Cece and Buster and like it just was an immediate click that could be true but the way especially that like Mike was laying it on was like oh that accent like look at you you little like Australian person I'm just like okay if it's not the accent if he's American accent he's just a young person and he's not that attractive yeah I think the only other thing I could think of that endeared him to Cece was the way he was like oh you know I make three meals one of them is coffee like he had a good sense of humor and I think that was maybe the only other thing that I could see but this whole storyline like it seems like it could go away and be forgotten or it might come back in the future but I really don't need to see it I think 10 years of an age gap isn't the biggest thing it doesn't mean that you can't pursue a relationship or anything like that but this particular age gap and the fact that it was at a bar and he's not even 21 I think it's just a very sizable and very different phases of their lives which I think is a bigger thing here although I know Cece's going through this whole what am I going to do with my life which might make it easier for her to date someone younger who might be in that same phase of life but I'm not sure I don't really like it and 
Maybe because I just want Cece and Schmidt to get back together and that might be influencing a lot of why I don't like her with someone else. But even then, like when she was with Robbie, I didn't mind it as much. So something about this pairing isn't doing it for me. And not that I disagree, but I at least feel that maybe this could be good because it will get Cece and Coach and all of that relationship situation aired out and moved on and moved past Coach isn't then in the scene at the end where Buster's really asking her out and Cece's like, yo, okay, I'm going to go on a break and not come back, you know, to go out with him. But like, it was kind of fun to see Nick Schmidt and Winston there kind of like catcalling in a way like, oh, look at you. Like, you check that out. Like, I mean, it was a little bit of a double standard, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, these guys are at least supporting Cece. I feel like that's a really important part of friendship. And I feel like, for the guys and for Cece to really be at that level of friendship, including Schmidt, right? Like Cece and Schmidt need to reestablish that foundation. And I feel like this is part of it. And I think it's going to be really good if it does continue beyond just like going out this one time to have Cece not ancestrally date someone else in the loft, essentially. So I'm, I'm okay with it from that perspective, but very much with you that long term is not going anywhere. Buster is not that exciting. <laughs> I'm not really here for the relationship, but I like the dynamic it's introducing to the larger storyline. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. I think it's much better than trying to just add another character that's in the loft to now date, like her dating Winston or something like that. Like I do like that better for her. So we'll see where it goes. We will. And with that, we'll get to our most likely to section where Kritika and I pick a couple things from the episode to see which of us would be more likely to do that thing. So Kritika, the first one that I have for you is who would be most likely to use an electric fly swatter like in the beginning of this episode? <laughs> we really didn't talk about it, but it was like really brief, but I, <laughs> I want to know who you think would use one. I think both of us would use one. I feel like why wouldn't we? I mean, <laughs> like, I, yeah, I guess it's better than a regular fly swatter. You get double the chances because at least it's electric. So I would say both of us. What about you? We own one of these. <laughs> we own the exact thing they were using in this episode. And <laughs> I will say that. I don't particularly love to use it because I get really like skittish around like, okay, it's like an electric thing and you have to be really careful about where you're swinging it. So I use it sometimes, but my husband, Fernando, uses it all the time when we have flies in our house and he like goes crazy. He looks like he should be in Wimbledon, like swinging <laughs> at these flies. Oh my gosh. And then they like spark and like explode. So <laughs> I just like really loved that that was in this episode because I'm like, oh, look, I have that. <laughs> so, so I don't know who would be most likely to. Probably both of us. I'm fine with that, but definitely me because we have it. <laughs> I'm so random. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly, which one of us do you think would be more likely to pretend we're selling stuff at a store a la Schmidt in this episode? This is an interesting one. I thought of this as well, like to see who of us would be more likely to do it. And I feel like it would be neither of us because I feel like neither of us would have rented a storefront without a bigger plan. <laughs> so that would prevent us from even having a storefront. And then I think neither of us, because even if we had that storefront, I don't think that we would immediately be like, let me put all my junk in this storefront and not cover up all the windows and like make it look enticing. I just think there were a lot of careless moves here, which I think we talked about like Schmidt in this storyline, like it, he's clearly going through something. It's messy. That's not really who he is. But I just don't think even in that state that Schmidt was in, I don't think we would be as careless. So I think neither of us. That's totally fair. I agree that I don't think either of us would be in that state. I think we would have figured out something else to do with our stuff or you know maybe if we were more like schmidt we would have actually insisted our roommates get rid of their stuff and put our stuff in like you said but i think that if i was in a room full of stuff that i was going to pretend to sell i think it would be me that would kind of like 
make up a price or like 100% full price. Like I think it would be more likely to be me, but I don't think I'd ever be in a position where that would happen either. Maybe it wasn't like your stuff. It was just like you were in the situation where you had to sell stuff and had to make it happen. I feel like, yeah, then I would pick you. Right. I'd be like, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Don't have time for this. All right. But Kritika, who would be most likely to get hit in the head with a volleyball? I'm going to say me because you like sports a lot more than I do. But I feel like we both could be this person. I do have my moments. (laughs) I won't deny (laughs) you that. But I would pick you as well. I played intramural volleyball in college for a hot second. And I did okay. It was not so bad. I don't think I remember like getting whacked in the head and like totally getting knocked out. But um, yeah, I would pick you just because I do like sports a little bit more. (laughs) Makes sense. So, Kelly, which one of us do you think would be most likely to fall asleep working? I'll address at the end of the episode. Oh, I was like, who fall asleep? <laughs> I was like, I sit at my desk all the time and like want to get <laughs> like want to put my head down. Um, no, um, I think it could be me for sure, but I'm debating if it could also be you. I think it could be because I feel like when we are really motivated in the way that Jess is and like so excited about something and you're just like nonstop working on it, I've definitely like fallen asleep in bed working on something before and for different reasons. So I've, I've been in that place before that it's definitely me and I think you've done the same. So I think both of us would do that. Yeah, I think both of us too. I think that it's something that, like you said, as passionate as Jess was about it, when we get into those moods, like everything else kind of fades away and then it's like late night and we didn't realize and then we're asleep because we were working so hard. So I definitely think that one could be both of us. The only thing is that I just don't have a headlamp. So Jess definitely looked a little cuter in the moment (laughs) with her little (laughs) dorky headlamp on front on top of her head. Me neither. So maybe that's something we need to get for each other soon to continue on. But with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our Schmidtism. And we're back. So for our Schmidtus in this episode, we had to talk about the caboose of life. So in this scene, I'll be Schmidt and Kelly will be Nick. And the one line sung by Winston will also be Kelly. God, I've fallen almost below you now, Nick. Just fellow passengers stuck in the caboose of life. You think I'm in the caboose of life? You love it in the caboose. Not me. It hurts. It's actually quite jarring. Loves it in the caboose. I don't love it in the caboose. Yes, he does. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Just this whole scene and even Winston's little sing-alongs in it just makes it so funny to just watch them do this in a storefront. And it made me think of season one, episode 15, because that's the last time that we got to see Winston playing the piano and just like riffing with the crowd and making songs. And unfortunately, I don't feel like I did him justice. (laughs) This scene definitely reminded me of that episode too, especially because they were kind of making their own songs, which is what Winston and the whole gang had done back in Injured. But taking us to our In the 2020s this episode, really what was a nod that were just little lines for us, like one, Mike saying he has quite an eye for young boys, but then like making a joke of it, but then not really joking about it. And you're like, what are you getting at, Mike? What what are you saying? And then also, of course, Dr. Foster just saying, Miss Day, I'm exclusively into Asian women. I wouldn't want to take advantage of you. And we kind of already shared, he's just... His lines and his character didn't age in the same way that other parts of this episode have. But then for our yes in the 2020s this episode, we did really love Jess standing up and doing the right thing to keep Coach's job. I think her realization of just saying, this isn't what I wanted. I want to make sure that the right person is there and that right person is you really just felt good and felt like a thing that definitely holds up today. Yeah, I think we've noticed that 
key moments of friendship tend to end up in our yes in the 2020s, but this is even more than that because it's standing up for what's right, if you will, that you shouldn't just punish someone for being the last one in like we talked about at length, but really seeing what they add value. So that's why it came up as a yes in the 2020s for us. But as we think about pop culture, we had to do some legal pop culture this time because, of course, this episode is riddled with references. So we picked Courtroom Brown's favorite author and favorite TV show this episode. So we'll be talking a little bit more about John Grisham and the TV show Judging Amy. So John Grisham is an American novelist, lawyer, and former member of the Mississippi House of Representatives. He's very popular for his legal thrillers. And he went to school and got a degree in accounting and then came back for his law degree in 1981, practiced law for about 10 years, specializing in criminal defense and personal injury litigation, and during that time started to write. And his first novel, A Time to Kill, was published in June 1989, four years after writing it. And this is especially important because his book was rejected 28 times until Winwood Press took a chance and printed a first run of 5,000 copies of it. And eventually he's had 47 consecutive number one bestsellers translated into nearly 50 languages. So even though his first book took a little bit of time to get out there, he definitely has had a lot of success with this. And his first bestseller, The Firm, sold more than 7 million copies, got adapted into a feature film in 1993 starring Tom Cruise, and then later a 2012 TV series that continued the story from the novel and film about 10 years after the event. And some of his other novels that have been adapted into films include The Chamber, The Client, A Painted House, The Pelican Brief, The Rainmaker, The Runaway Jury, and Skipping Christmas. He's got a lot of books out there that are legal thrillers and spends his time when he's not writing on the board of directors for the Innocence Project and of Centurion Ministries that are both national organizations dedicated to exonerating those who have been wrongfully convicted because most of his fiction explores deep-seated problems within the American criminal justice system. And as for Winston's favorite legal television show, he prefers Judging Amy. And this series was a drama that focused on three generations of women living together in Hartford, Connecticut. The show was created by Amy Brenneman, who based the series on her real-life experiences of Amy's mother, Frederica, who was a judge of the Connecticut State Superior Court. Amy Brenneman, who also is the main actress who portrays the main character, Amy Gray, on the show Judging Amy. The show originally was going to be titled Shades of Grey, which good thing it wasn't because that would have been pretty confusing with other popular movies that have similar names. But another note that we wanted to share about the stars of the show is that Jillian Arminante, who was a reoccurring starring character in Judging Amy, was actually a guest star from season three, episode five of New Girl, where she was the bank teller. And lastly, with Judging Amy, there is a known snafu, if you will, that the Hartford Judicial District Court on the show has the address starting with 1265 with the street unknown, but the actual Hartford Judicial District was 95 Washington Street. On our guest stars segment this episode, we have previously discussed Ben Falcone, who plays Mike in Season 3, Episode 13, Birthday, Curtis Armstrong, who plays Principal Foster in Season 2, Episode 24, Winston's Birthday, and Brian Posen, the biology teacher in Season 3, Episode 11, Clavado and Unbar. We're also not discussing James Freshville, who plays Buster, Matt Fussfeld, the douchey guy, Helen Hong, a teacher, Kim Yarbrough, another teacher, Michelle N. Carter, yet another teacher, and Jace Dempsey, who plays Rakeem. The first person we will be talking about is Matt Price, who plays Bill Berklin. We know Matt from shows like Arrested Development and The Office, and he's also in one episode of Good Girls, The League, and Heart of Dixie, and we also know him from the movie Evan Almighty. He was also known for other TV shows like Men of a Certain Age and Transparent. Matt Price is also known as a writer for television shows like Close Enough and The Regular Show. And for The Regular Show, 
Matt actually won an Emmy for his writing in 2012. And he's also been nominated for Emmys five other times. He currently lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Tamara Krinsky, and their daughter. And another fun fact about him is that he auditioned for the role of Dwight on the show The Office in 2003. We're also talking about Lori Johnson, who was the stenographer in this episode. And we know Lori from television shows like Mom, Everybody Loves Raymond, The Secret Life of the American Teenager, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, and then one episode of The Big Bang Theory and one episode of Grey's Anatomy. She's also known for movies like Waitress. Lori's first prominent role was providing additional voices to the Hanna-Barbera cartoon The Jetsons, which I thought was really interesting. And she also began landing smaller roles in movies like City of Angels and The Negotiator, and then later appeared in the episodes of several popular television shows, but only as minor characters. She has been married to William Salisbury since August of 1998, and they have one child together. And she's actually the daughter of the singer and pianist Annette Warren and the TV and film musician and jazz pianist Paul T. Smith. Lastly, we're talking about Rob Kirkovich, who plays Tim. Kelly and I know Rob from shows like Parks and Recreation, Two Broke Girls, Modern Family, and Happy Endings, all of which he had one episode on. And he's also famous for shows like NCIS New Orleans, CSI Miami, Chasing Life, and movies like The Rebound and Cloverfield. Kirkovich has also served as a writer on the series Happy Endings, which we know Damon Wayans Jr. was on, and he was the co-founder of a comedy troupe called Summer of Tears, and he now plays in the Glass Cannons podcast Call of Cthulhu series Time for Chaos. He's married to Anjali Prasertong, and they have one child together. In our trivia and fun facts this episode, we did find a couple fun little goofs, if you will, from the overall storyline. One of which is that in season three, episode three, Double Date, Jess mentions to Nick that she's weirdly good at volleyball. But clearly in this episode, when she's playing volleyball with coach, she doesn't manage to hit one ball correctly. And it seems that she is just very adverse to sports, if not specifically volleyball. Another is that Principal Foster does awkwardly, disgustingly share that he's exclusively into Asian women. But in season two, episode 24, Winston's birthday, the teacher Peg, who was a white woman, shared that Principal Foster was, quote, porking her. So an awkward but still slight discrepancy there. And then lastly, Principal Foster in this episode spoke of Christy Yamaguchi having been at Lilyhammer, meaning a reference to the 1994 Winter Olympics at Lilyhammer. But Christy Yamaguchi was not an Olympian at that Olympics. She did, however, win gold at the Albertville Olympics in 1992. Additionally, when we were researching this episode, we found a recap or review of this episode from the AV Club back when this episode first aired and we'll include the link for you in our show notes but I just thought it was very interesting to read through because it touches on the whole Winston versus coach dynamic and how it feels like to someone other than Kelly and myself that the writers do a better job or are more focused on writing for coach than they do for Winston. In fact, in the article, it says, for whatever reason, the show's staff writes more comfortably and confidently for Coach. And just thought this was really interesting because we've been commenting a lot about how Lamorne Morris does make Winston's character great, but the writers aren't putting a lot into Winston since Coach has been back. And even before that, his storylines were very different than Schmidt, who should be an equal participant in the humor and everything that's happening at the loft. And when we read this article even more closely, it was a refreshing take of saying that it doesn't matter where this leaves Winston because Winston has really blossomed from what Lamorne Morris has made out of it. So this episode, we just get to see him being really good at piano because it's one of two where he's just in front of a piano. And getting to see him be courtroom brown was really just... Lamorne easing into the role of Winston, whether it was laid out for him or not, and making it his own, which I think is a really interesting take. And I think, Kelly, is also something you've said in episodes past. Like, you didn't 
maybe love that they didn't give him a storyline, but the way Lamorne, the actor, took Winston is really what made it salvageable and made watching him really a fun part of the episode. Yeah, definitely. And a fun article to find because it shares just even in the moment how that was really what was being perceived about the episode and the characters. Lastly, though, we did want to note that there was no bear in this episode that Kritika or I found. And I guess I'll asterisk that to say no unique bear in this episode. I think that it was noted maybe online in different places that there's the bear on the fridge, but no other unique bear was found in this episode. And that gets us to our rating and favorite character section of our podcast. So this episode got a 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb and had 2.48 million U.S. viewers. I gave this episode an 8 out of 10. I actually think if I were to isolate Winston in this episode, I might have made it a 10 out of 10 or some of Coach's lines. But overall, there was some stuff that I just didn't overly enjoy. So for me, it was an 8 out of 10. And I gave this episode a seven and a half out of 10. I liked it, but then I felt like there was a lot going on in this episode. It wasn't my favorite that we just took the storyline through this entire trial case situation with Schmidt. However, I did like everybody's parts in that. So I thought it was really funny. So it wasn't one of my favorites when I think about just episodes this season, but I did really enjoy a lot of the humor with it, which leads me to my favorite character. I did pick coach because I just thought his lines and his crying and his coach coach, like I'm not coach. I'm just coach. (laughs) Just (laughs) the way maybe even as that article was speaking to, you know, they really wrote for coach well in this episode. And I appreciated Damon Wayans performance. And I actually had coach when I initially was watching the episode, but Talking about all the courtroom Brown stuff, I just felt like Winston was so in his element and Lamorne did such a great job. So I have to say that I changed my favorite character to Winston, especially talking through this, because I just really enjoyed the humor he brought to the screen and how he could be there for his friends, but also not be totally serious about it. So I'm excited to see what happens with him in the future. That really gets us to the end of our episode before the spoiler section. So thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast as always. And as always as well, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at who's that girl pod, or send us an email at who's that girl pod at gmail.com. We're always happy to get your insights and your perspective and we want to be your best friends. So write to us and Let us know your thoughts. All right. If you don't want to hear any future storylines, you have five seconds to pause. And if you do, we'll chat again for the next episode. All right. Our spoiler section. We always start off with our end game couples. So first up is Jess and Nick. And I guess since this is the spoiler section and knowing next episode is when they break up, I was maybe analyzing them a little bit more critically because I felt like that scene where Jess was getting ignored by Nick and then later, like they didn't really talk, but they were in the show together. It just made me bring down my ranking to a six out of 10. Yeah, I give them a 6.5. So I think really around the same I know we usually don't do 0.25 ratings, so I'm going to go ahead and just lower it to a six for the two of us because I think we're definitely biased by knowing they're going to break up, but there was a lack of communication there to your point. And it's coming off the heels of the whole sister fiasco with Jess's sister. That's right. So definitely a little bit lower than it's been in some episodes past. For Schmidt and Cece, this one was an easy one. It was a zero. I want to give them more, but we're just not seeing Schmidt and Cece being a thing yet. So it was a zero for me. Zero for me as well. Because yeah, there's just no interaction between them in the episode. And the only time they did is when Schmidt was egging on Buster and is sort of being supportive there. So zero for both of us. But then for Schmidt's douchebag tracker, where we rate Schmidt a 10 if he is a douchebag and zero if he's really a genuine guy, was interesting this episode. I ended up giving him a four, but I also feel like I could be persuaded anywhere up to a four, like zero to four, because 
I don't know like that there was anything specific that he did that was like super douchey. Maybe just having all his stuff in a storefront and trying to sell it, but like barely. Yeah, I I give him a four too. I didn't think the storefront was particularly douchey, but as you were saying, you could be worked anywhere from zero to four. I thought you were going to say four to six or something like that because as always, our scale is zero with him being a genuine guy and 10 being a total douchebag. But really, the only things I could think of that didn't make it lower than a four were all his comments to Nick about, I don't trust you because you do say the G in lasagna. So it's things like that where it's like unnecessarily douchey. I mean, there's often times where Schmidt's douchiness is what makes humor too. So it's kind of hand in hand at times. But in this episode, it was definitely on the lower side. So I think that's a four for both of us. Yeah. And then the only other spoilers this episode, as we already have mentioned slightly, is that Jess and Nick break up next episode. And I'm so distraught over it. It's going to be a little bit of a hard episode to record because it just took so long for Jess and Nick to be a thing. And already they're not going to be. So not really looking forward to that. If it makes you feel any better, at least there is True American in the next episode. So it's quick, but there's something to look forward to. That is true. Always a good episode with True American. Exactly. And with that, Kelly and I want to say thank you again for listening to this episode of Who's That Girl? We love to hear your feedback, so please give us a rating, leave comments in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you're listening to this now. And you can always send us an email at whosthatgirlpod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at whosthatgirlpod. And you can check out our website with all our show notes at smallscreenchatter.com. But more than anything, we really hope you'll be back next time for episode 20 to break down Jess and Nick's breakup with us. Thanks. Bye.